everybody. My name is Gustav Krank and I, I'm so happy to see all of you here in this room today. So we're having a room about long COVID and about the Vegas now. Just about myself, a little bit background. The reason why I have this Vegas nerve room is because I had the burnout 10 years ago. I had a friend of mine who got me to something called uh, Vipassana meditation, which was immensely helpful for me. And it helped uh, kind of me to get over and survive, I always say. What I also, what it led to is that I decided to devote my, my life uh, from then on to understanding the brain and especially on what happens in burnouts, depression, anxiety and so forth because I still had anxiety at times. So uh, I uh, developed uh, something called vagus nerve stimulation and, and uh, consequently went to, to the US, was there uh, in California where we quickly, where I discovered that we need neurofeedback and I developed diagnostics and these diagnostics then led to, to being able to, to find more answers on, on general diseases like chronic fatigue and so forth, which again led to that I then was invited to Cambridge, UK, where for the past four years, my company, Vegas Health uh, Limited, has been operating and we do bioelectronics and diagnostics. And so for, for, from this path of then has led to that we uh, started producing uh, our own smartwatch and uh, and using my developed test also for we got access to apple watch uh, watches data and so we have uh, apple, apple watches and with all this data we've been collected uh, over the years we of course were in the position to see when the covid 19 came that we could see uh, how it influences the data of our users, because this test is about the autonomic nervous system and COVID-19 influences uh, the autonomic nervous system in, in particular. And in this room I've been having since the spring, I've had the great pleasure of having all our, our wonderful hosts, speakers uh, participate, and I'm especially happy to to Today, we're going to have all of these, uh, my wonderful friends to present. And I need to point out to, uh, before we start is that we are recording these, these talks it, with the intent to put it online and, and as text. And we, we want to be able to, for more people to, to access what we discuss. And I also want to point out that this is, whatever we talk today is not medical advice. It is not intended for any, any changes of your treatments and so forth. And all the speakers are discussing uh, what we call hypothesis. Uh, so that's the kind of the personal opinions which we are presenting. So this, I think, is important for you to, to keep in mind when you listen to my great friends who are who are presenting today the structure of today will be so that we're going to try to hold around 15 minutes kind of summaries of what we talked over the past months I'll, i'm going to start and and i will also then have the great pleasure of of having katie to to talk katie has been uh, unfortunately has long covid and she has a, a, a scientific background. She's in South Africa, and she has been helping me so much to get a deeper understanding on what is long COVID, 
what what should we do how should we approach and she has a wonderful network of contacts and and act, active on different groups and and access to people so i'm so happy that she is joining me today so let's let's see what what uh, we have come up with yes please katie your turn Hi, this is Katie speaking. Um, thank you so much, Gustave, for um, introducing me, and thanks again for an amazing room. I've really enjoyed all your rooms since we've been discussing for the past few months um, all about the vagus nerve and particularly how it relates to long COVID and um, postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome or POTS um, post COVID, which many of us have. So a quick introduction, my name is Katie Gledhill. Um, I live in South Africa. Um, I am a scientist, a marine biologist, and I was finishing my PhD last year when I contracted COVID. Um, unfortunately, it's been a long journey. Um, I'm still a year later, still sick and still unable to work, which has also meant that I'm spending a lot of time on long COVID advocacy, um, I have also a club co-founded with one of the other speakers, uh, Dr. Alice, um, called uh, In It For The Long Haul. Um, so if anybody would like to join that, they're more than welcome to. Thank you very much, Katie. Yeah, the body has two immune systems. The body has the molecular immune system, which we all know about. It's the, what's in the news every day. It's the vaccines, it's kind of T-cells, whatever. They're, what, what is molecularly acting to, to kind of fight and, and take care of our health. But we have the other one, which is very, very important. Also, it's called the cholinergic immune system. It's the neurological immune system. That's kind of like uh, the, the, the Pentagon of, of uh, deciding where to send the molecules and how much to do where and, and uh, to, to activate and deactivate and so forth. And that's the cholinergic immune system, which is, the, in a sense, the vagus nerve. So it's extremely important for anyone getting sick. And it's especially important in, in uh, we could see it early, it's called the cytokine. Uh, if you remember when, when COVID came, uh, people died of cytokine storms and stuff like that. It was an excess of kind of defense soldiers out in the blood cell. That's the cytokine signaling. Uh, and, and this was kind of where, where the very strong signal came that the vagus nerve evolved. What, what, of course, we could see in the data already then, we had uh, a lot of users, we had watches out and so forth. So we could see when people got sick, we could, of course, see the changes in our test data, in our diagnosis. And, and uh, from there, we actually, it, it was really, when you get COVID-19, yes, we can, we, we don't predict COVID-19 or anything like that. We, we can see quite quickly, of course, if you get it, but what was really interesting in the day days, we could see afterwards uh, things which changed, and and uh, that's that's kind of the the reason we we are are now involved in long COVID because what we do with the test is uh, we 
we look, of course, it's electrocardiogram. That's electrical signal of the heart. So we can see if the heart is not reacting normally to your control breathing signal. It's a little bit like uh, you have to think of the of your autonomic nervous system like a hybrid car. It's it's normally let's say it normally acts on electrical. With the electrical engine, it goes smoothly by itself, but but when you do control breathing, you change the settings. So it's a little bit like uh, uh, putting affecting the, the the gasoline engine, and, and it's a different, totally different setting. So what we could see in uh, in in long COVID or in long COVID patients is that, for instance, in the heart, it wasn't smooth anymore. We have a parameter called called uh, cardiac sinus smoothness and and so it was like in the car it, the engine doesn't come on as it should so it was unstable and this we then could derive back to see that these patients very often had uh, low-grade myocarditis and in long corner it, it's a signal of a random inflammation in the heart and, and this is something we could see in the data can see that was one. The second one, of course, is breathing. So we do control breathing. And what I discovered uh, already quite long ago is an old effect called a Brody effect. In which it's when you look at the raw signal of the electrocardiogram in hand to hand, the amplitude is changing in a certain way, especially in the upper body and in the hand to hand. It's very strong, this signal. You don't see it in the chest ECG. And that one we could then derive to, uh, it's explained why it's the diaphragma, your most important kind of breathing muscle, and the diaphragma moves the heart. And so we could see in the signal if there was an inflammation, remnant inflammation, uh, oh, we, we are, of course, researching this more, but this is the, the, what we get from the data back, that if this kind of respiratory smoothness is not okay. If there is something wrong with the diaphragma in the lung inflammation, then we can see that in the data. So that way we could we can see that part of long COVID. And the third part is, of course, general dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system. So, uh, and we have here Katie and, and what, what happens in uh, long COVID quite often is something called and Katie, you can tell more about that. But that's, that has very much to do with how the autonomic nervous system is adjusting the, the pulse levels when you get up and down. So if something goes wrong inside the nerve, basically in the control center, in the brainstem or something like that. We don't really know. Or is it an autoimmune disease or whatever it's. But uh, so that's, and there it becomes really interesting because actually we started with by test already five, six years ago, and it's a five seconds inhale and five seconds exhale. And, and what I found just recently in, there is a book equivalent to Grace Anatomy for dysfunction of the autonomic nervous system, which all medical schools use to, uh, to learn about dysfunction of uh, the autonomic nervous system. And there is specifically for a long time already recommended a test where it's five seconds inhale and five seconds exhale. So that was really funny. Uh, oh, very nice that we, we do the same. And so, so we do that test. So that's the third. So what, 
what uh, what I, I luckily then was was asked to to do a study at Karolinska University on long COVID triage because if you can understand from these tests these different parameters, we can maybe help uh, the patients and the healthcare providers or the doctors to know where to start because long COVID uh, has a very complex kind of symptomatic uh, picturing where there's different kind of symptoms, different kind of issues which go wrong. And, and it's really, really uh, critically important to, to improve the way and how quickly you can start doing the right stuff for the patient because it takes a lot of resources from the healthcare otherwise to go. So it's called a triage. It's when you kind of look at the different probabilities of which is the most important thing to start with in the, the, in the, in the treatment of a long COVID patients. So currently uh, that's at Karolinska in Stockholm, of course, in Sweden, who has had, if you've read about COVID, they've had quite a lot of COVID-19 and, and of course, they have found they have also the, the normal prevalence of long COVID that's 10 to 15 percent of people who have COVID-19 have long COVID and, and there's different clinics. Karolinska has several long COVID clinics and we are doing it as part of that. So, so this is kind of how I, uh, well, we are working on the scientific side, but at the same time, we also do crowdsourcing data with with our apps so we have it's called the Vegas ECG which is for for Apple watches who have uh, those which have ECGs and then what we we are actually in September we are launching another lightweight app in a way who is doing the same test but just for breathing data and that's called the breathe ECG and and uh, that's a way to collect data and to to tell people uh, and to get data, of course, for the research, to get crowdsourced data, but also to, to be able to that specifically those who have breathing problems, for instance, we can see that they can monitor and how they how they treat themselves or how they do interventions, medications and so forth, if they help their their disease. So this was this was just short. I'm trying just short to summarize why I am having this room why we work with 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 long covid and and i think it's so so important that we find uh, new ways to to diagnose and research or uh, the, the long covid uh, as a as a symptom as a problem for people which is which is a humongous issue and and it's just growing by the day so that's that was short, and, and now I'm so happy to see that we have Katie, Joyce, and John here, and and uh, I would love to to hear a little bit, Katie. How you, let's start with Katie. I'm just going to say she's a researcher, South Africa, uh, unfortunately caught long COVID here uh, uh, more than a, a year ago, I think it is. But I'd love to have. She's been my dear friend in this room for for all this time and I'm so happy that you are here. Katie, yes, hi, how are you doing? And please, please tell about what you think a summary of long COVID at the moment. Hello, it's Katie speaking. Um, thank you so much once again, Gustav, for holding this amazing room. Um, 
I've really enjoyed getting to know you. It's been a journey um, for the past few months. Um, and firstly, I just want to say thank you so much um, for caring about the long COVID community. I know that I know sincere from your heart and that you have spent a lot of time listening to me and many other long COVID patients um, describe our symptoms and um, also learning about one of the conditions I have, which is POTS, so postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, which is a different, which is, sorry, excuse my words, um, is a form of dysautonomia that I can go into in a minute. Um, but it's been a journey this this time, and I'm just also really grateful for Joyce and John, who are here on this stage as well. Um, John is just an amazing wealth of knowledge um, about COVID and the effects on the body. Um, so I'm really grateful to have met him through these rooms and Joyce as well with her inflammation and, um, and learning about the gut. And I believe that this is one of the things that I've done really recently that has really helped um, alleviate some of the symptoms that I have um, with POTS, but also just long COVID um, situations that I have, like with joint pain and things like that. So I'll just quickly start with my journey. Uh, my name's Katie. I live in South Africa, as Gustav said. Um, I was finishing my PhD last year. Um, I was very motivated, high-functioning um, scientist, um, always on the go, always doing a million things, raising two children and homeschooling. Um, and at the time, the narrative was that young, healthy people don't get sick from COVID. So I personally wasn't scared of contracting COVID. Um, I was certainly aware of how um, how serious this disease can be um, or this virus can be. Um, but I thought that, you know, I was more concerned about being a vector and infecting other people. Um, however... <laughs> Um, so I did everything right, um, was quarantining and everything and, you know, with my children um, and unfortunately I got COVID um, and when I realised it was COVID, I also thought that I would get better in two weeks and unfortunately that didn't happen. It kept continuing and I had never heard of long COVID at the time. Um, as I said, not, it's, I'm not throwing around my PhD just to prove that I'm smart, but just to highlight the difference of what has happened in my life um, through this journey. So I was analyzing genomes, writing scientific papers and everything like that. And it all came to a screeching halt when I contracted COVID. Um, I have what is now termed as neurological COVID or neuro-COVID, um, which means that it's affected my cognitive um, ability and executive functioning. Um, I've improved a lot over the time, and anyone that's known me on Clubhouse can attest to how much, um, how much I've improved just with my speech. But I couldn't even understand how to read or write or, you know, text message or Google or anything for a couple of months, um, which was just really disheartening, especially as a scientist, um, to go, it was a dramatic change in my life. And I personally believe it's more than just um, brain fog. Um, there have been several studies. One of the most compelling ones is coming out of the UK, where they had images of people's brains um, 
through an MRI and functional MRI scans that was part of a biobank study. So they had collected these MRIs years ago, three years ago, um, for nothing to do with COVID. Obviously, COVID wasn't around at the time. Um, And they can compare, so um, they can compare before and after COVID and also compare control um, control populations as well. And what it found is that there is, um, in some cases, there is a lot of grey matter on the brain. Um, so it's certainly um, affecting the brain and um, neurological issues as well. Um, there's also a study that's been published in The Lancet that um, showed it was a huge uh, sample survey of over 230,000 um, COVID survivors, and um, a third of them, a third of them, had either neurological or psychiatric or neuropsychiatric conditions six months after contracting COVID. And if anybody wants any links to any of the studies that I'm mentioning, um, please feel free to DM me, and then um, perhaps Gustav can also link them with this recording as well. Um, so it certainly had a lot of impact on our bodies. And um, as Gustav mentioned, one of the conditions I have, and I also mentioned, is um, dysautonomia. This was also something I wasn't really aware of and wasn't told to take um, take notice of. I wasn't monitoring my heart rate at first. I was monitoring my oxygen religiously just to make sure that my oxygen saturation was okay, Um, but I wasn't measuring my heart rate. And once I did, I noticed that it was all over the place and I wasn't sure what was going on. Um, And finally, uh, we figured it out and I was diagnosed with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome. Um, which is a form of dysautonomia. And what that means is, as Gustav touched on, it's um, either a malfunction or dysfunction or something going on with your autonomic nervous system. And this can affect all sorts of things. So it can affect your heart rate, but also um, uh, gastrointestinal issues, which is where you know someone like Joyce is really helpful as well. Um, and what it means is that I lie down and my heart rate is around 80 beats per minute and just upon standing, um, it can be up to 120, 130 beats per minute just standing. And that might sound sort of simple, but it's severe side effects. So it means that I am really, really dizzy. I, um, I pass out. I fall all the time. Um, my feet swell because all the blood goes from your brain and to your feet. So my feet are huge. Um, it's extremely painful. And, um, you know, just doing simple tasks like getting out of bed and going to um, the bathroom or standing to cook uh, for my children is can be really challenging and impossible on some days. So I'm just really grateful for people like the staff, you know, Long COVID is so new, it's such a large umbrella of different um, symptoms. Not all of us have um, exactly the same symptoms. There's certainly evidence, and again, I can send um, the literature that's been done so far, um, but certainly women between the age of 20 and 50 that contracted um, long, well, contracted long COVID, have long COVID, um, do have indication of some sort of de- 
form of dysautonomia or POTS-like symptoms. Um, I can tell you just anecdotally from, I know a lot of long COVID patients all over the world and I could barely, I could barely name one female in that age range that doesn't have POTS. Um, so it's certainly affecting a lot of women. And um, in a case like mine, it's really severe. Um, it's been a year and I'm unable to work still. I still can't use a computer. So it's something that I'm really concerned about. And we need to have more of an understanding of what's going on in the body um, so we can have treatment. We can't have treatment before we know what we're dealing with. And that's why research like what Gustav is doing with his colleagues is so critical to understanding what's happening and we can find ways to treat us and also really importantly self-monitor so we know if there is um, an activity that we're doing that causes um, vagal dysfunction or um, you know, jumps in heart rates or something like that. And um, as Joyce will probably say too, you know, related to different food we eat um, and many different things. So I think it's a, an amazing tool also just for self-monitoring and also um, being able to collect data that we can show directly to our doctors. Because, you know, when we go see a doctor, it's just a snapshot. And I've had to record my heart rate. Um, I was doing it previously just on my phone just to show how much it fluctuates just standing and did that consistently. But having something on a watch with an app is just really a powerful tool to be able to um, describe this to doctors. Um, and I'm happy to answer any further questions or um, if Gustav wants me to elaborate on it, on anything, I'm more than happy to do that. And anyone's uh, welcome to reach out to me. The best way to do, uh, reach me is DMs on Instagram because back channel gets jammed here on Clubhouse. And um, again, I'm just really grateful for you, Gustav, and thank you for holding this space. Um, oh, I did want to mention just very quickly, I know I've been talking a long time, but just in terms of the vagus nerve, um, where it first came up to me in my journey is I was having severe vertigo and lightning flashes um, in my eyes and um, cloudy eyes and things like that. One of my friends is an optometrist and I went to see her because I explained my um, what was going on and she took images on my eye and I had a red spot on my macula. Um, which is indicative of um, a potential um, ocular occlusion, meaning an eye stroke. So because all the doctors are so full here, it took me about a week to see the um, eye doctor. And at that time, he couldn't see it. So we don't know if it just cleared or it passed through and thankfully hasn't affected my vision so well. But I know many other long COVID patients it has. And that's where my journey with the vagus nerve started because he also suggested um, that it could be the vagus nerve. And he was so, so kind and sat down with me for an hour and showed me all these studies and this book. And I started going down the wormhole of the vagus nerve. And when I saw Gustav on Clubhouse talking about the vagus nerve, it was sort of a general topic type room and wasn't related to long COVID, but I just came to stage and asked him about long COVID. Um, and that's where we really began our journey of, you know, 
talking about it more and um, becoming good friends and everything like that. So um, thank you so much. And I'm so interested in the vagus nerve and I hope that you can really help us long COVID patients figure this out and some way towards treatment. So I appreciate you all. I'm sending you much love from South Africa. It's Katie and I am complete. Thank you, Katie. As always, you're so kind and lovely. And I so appreciate having having the chance to get to know you here. And I can tell everybody here that it's it's uh, interesting to, to... It's so nice to follow you, Katie, over this kind of period because I can hear you. I can see you. I can hear you. And it's really uh, interesting to see that I can... From your first comment, I can quite often quickly hear from the voice, the sound of your voice, if you are doing better or worse. And, and uh, it's so tragic. I mean, you, for everybody here to, to understand that Katie is it's going up and down. And, and I've been having what's a fortunate or unfortunate uh, situation to follow your path here in long COVID, where it's, it gets worse and gets better. I'm so happy to hear. I hear on your sound that you today are, are much better and and that makes me very happy i get just a small summary or small comment there on your presentation yeah i want to remind everybody that current findings are that long covid and and especially a lot of these seems to be predominant there seems to be kind of a bias towards women and and unhealthy women 20 to 55 and and there are issues about hormonal questions and so forth everything unsolved yet but it's it's uh, really interesting and i'm going to hold that as again uh, a gate uh, or kind of uh, a bridge to the nest because joyce uh, what joyce has also had the pleasure to to learn so much from joyce here in this room and joyce is again a chronic fatigue syndrome sufferer uh, where where CFS, it's called CFS, is also something where women have been predominantly suffering from. And it's a mysterious kind of uh, problem which hasn't been solved. I actually came into this immune lab in Cambridge due to uh, chronic fatigue syndrome, which I already started working over in the Stanford Medical School. And, and so, so I, uh, the chronic fatigue syndrome is kind of something we hope that long COVID research will also help to solve the chronic fatigue syndrome or answer some questions for chronic fatigue. But now, uh, sorry, I'm not talking more. Joyce, I'm so happy to have you here. Uh, please tell me how are you doing and how are things? Yeah, hi, Gustav. Things are great. Um, yeah, and I should say former chronic fatigue syndrome sufferer because I'm feeling great most of the time now. Anyway, anyway, thank you, Gustav, for all you've been doing and are still doing in so many areas. And it's been really great to get to know you and as well as other people in this room. And, and Katie, I'm so happy you're feeling better. And it's interesting you're talking about heart rate and as um, people will find out if they go to my website and if they, you know, sign up for updates or, or follow me, I'll be talking a lot more about heart rate because it's really key to what I have learned and my inventions. Um, so on that note, I will go on to a more general discussion rather than focusing on my inventions right now. Um, so what I'm going to focus on is food and other exposures from the environment. 
And as Gustav mentioned, I have had a severe long-term case of chronic fatigue syndrome, now called ME-CFS, and it has a lot of resemblance to long COVID, at least in many cases. And I started a company that's developing a patent-pending approach to detect food and environmental reactions. And by the way, it uses heart rate, um, along with the other inventions that got me well. Um, so for a little overall context, a large part of the focus in medicine is on mechanisms to detect druggable targets. And this is understandable since medicine is primarily focused on medications and surgery, which of course have great benefits. There's also a focus on genetic factors, and certainly most diseases have at least some genetic component. However, in the last 50 years, many chronic inflammatory diseases are increasing globally in association with the adoption of a westernized diet and lifestyle. And so this increase cannot be explained by changes in genetics. So we need to keep that in mind and also keep in mind that even genetic factors, they may be related to the environment so that it's only when you have a certain environmental exposure that the genetic factor becomes an important issue. So um, one example of an environmental factor is the area of food hypersensitivity. And for the moment, I'm going to focus on hypersensitivity and not food allergy. Food allergy is mediated by a type of antibody called IgE. Um, and uh, this is an area of food hypersensitivity where there have been not that many studies, but the evidence is starting to accumulate. And certain biomarkers in the blood have been associated with food hypersensitivities. And um, some of the tests that are out there that have some evidence, but are somewhat controversial still, are the ALCAT test, um, total IgG, and IgG4 specific to foods. And there are also some studies coming out looking at more local gastrointestinal changes, like they do endoscopy and they analyze intestinal fluids and tissues, and they look for changes in immune system markers and mast cells and IgE antibodies in just that local area. And my own experience and other evidence indicates that unrecognized food and environmental hypersensitivities could be important in a lot of diseases. So I developed severe ME-CFS when I was in my mid-20s and I was disabled within a few years. Um, as in my own case, this condition often starts after an infection. And then there are many other post-infectious conditions that are like long COVID and ME-CFS. And they frequently involve fatigue, cognitive problems, orthostatic intolerance like POTS, um, mast cell activation, sometimes autoantibodies are found. So there's a lot of mystery around all these diseases. And I should go, before I go on, I should say that when I'm discussing environmental factors, I want to clarify that I'm not saying that people who got sick had poor lifestyles and diets and were doing all the wrong things. I had a healthy lifestyle myself and I got sick. It's the food and environmental factors. They can often be subtle and independent of 
how healthy a lifestyle you you feel you are living. It's just that we don't know all about all these environmental factors, and they kind of kind of go under the radar. Um, so. I also think that changes in the microbiome are intimately related to these sensitivities and are related to environmental and diet changes occurring in the last 50 to 100 years. And I would point out that many studies have shown that there are more severe cases of COVID-19, for instance, where there is higher air pollution. And there are a number of studies showing an unbalanced microbiome in the gut is associated with more severe COVID-19. And we know that the microbiome is greatly affected by diet. <clears throat> so <clears throat> the reason I actually came to all these views is because of my own experience and my recovery. And that has focused so much on these extensive food and hypersensitivities to the environment that I had. And my reactions also were not IgE. They were by these, according to these other mechanisms, apparently, involving IgG and cellular immune responses. And there's probably, I believe, a lot of different mechanisms that can be going on. And the vagus nerve and stress are involved because research in humans and animals shows that allergies and inflammation cause stress. And this affects the balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic parts of the nervous system. The vagus nerve is an important part of the parasympathetic nervous system. So it is involved in the dynamics of the stress and the inflammation. So as far as COVID, there are many chronic diseases associated with developing more severe COVID, as many of you probably know. And virtually all of these chronic diseases are associated with chronic low-grade inflammation and changes in the microbiome. And they typically uh, have changes where there are increases in certain microbes that are potential pathogens, and they call them pathobionts. So my hypothesis is that the virus stimulates the immune system, and it reacts not only to the virus, but also these other microbes, which may be part of the reason why the inflammation continues and worsens even after the virus is declining. So the coronavirus may stimulate inflammation um, more than most viruses because research has shown that the spike protein has similarities to a super antigen. Super antigens are substances that turn on a higher proportion of immune cells, resulting in more inflammation. There are a number of conditions associated with other super antigens. For instance, toxic shock syndrome is one such condition. So my hypothesis is that people with continuing symptoms after the virus is controlled are reacting to these pathobionts that I mentioned and to foods and other substances in the environment that cross-react with them. Cross-reaction means that food and the microbes contain parts that appear similar in structure, and so they appear the same to the immune system. And you may be aware of chronic, um, I mean, of cross-reactions when it comes to the molecular mimicry hypothesis of autoimmunity. So my own experience is that by addressing the reactions to food and other substances, one's immune system can become more balanced 
and not react so excessively and regain balance in the microbiome as well and reduce stress levels and heart rate, by the way. My heart rate has gone down greatly. So my company is developing my approach with plans to do trials in several conditions over the next decade. And my approach builds upon the extensive research done decades ago by Dr. Arthur Koka. He was the founder of the Journal of Immunology and he headed a major laboratory. And, And at some point, After he did a lot of scientific research, he also published a book called The Pulse Test. Um, So I should stress that even though I think environmental factors and food play an important role, I am in favor of vaccination and mask wearing, and what I'm saying is not in conflict with the other scientific research. In fact, as I mentioned, there's plenty of research that's consistent with my hypothesis, like the air pollution and the and the gut microbiome studies. So just at the end here, as I'm finishing up, I thought I would mention a couple studies that just show that recent progress is being made in the area of food hypersensitivity. But it's there's a long way to go in that area. So, um, for instance, there was a 2021 pilot study in the February issue of the Clinical Translational Gastroenterology Journal. Patients with food allergy were found to have higher intestinal tumor necrosis factor alpha and low interferon gamma in contrast with those with food hypersensitivity, which had the opposite. They had high interferon gamma values and low TNF alpha. And so that's a new finding, you know, and it, it seems um, concerning to me that we didn't learn this before, but they, they did not find it easy to find this. They had to look in the gastrointestinal fluids and in the tissues to find this difference. And another study, which actually cited that previous one, just came out a month or two ago, And it was done in attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. And I think it's relevant because people with long COVID and ME-CFS have a lot of attentional and cognitive issues. And so it wouldn't be surprising to me if there's reason to um, think they're involved with some of the same processes. But anyway, this one is called Individual Behavioral Reactions in the Context of Food Sensitivities in Children with ADHD before and after an oligoantigenic diet. And that's basically just a low, very low allergy diet. And it was in the journal Nutrients, volume 13. So um, the study found significant benefits. And they also cite many other studies that also showed benefits in individuals with this condition. But first they had to go on this low antigen or allergen diet and then introduce foods one at a time and they said that they found that a simple food diary approach was not adequate and that they had to do this more um, kind of rigorous method to figure it out but they give an overview of quite a few studies that that are showing similar results I have a feeling that they could probably get even better results if they had even better ways of detecting more subtle types of reactions, but that's something my my company will get into doing. So I think they need more studies 
like these in POTS, long COVID, and a variety of other conditions, but there's been kind of a slowness to make advances in this area. So anyway, I think I've gone on long enough and um, people can ask questions at some point. But oh, I would make one other point and that is that I think it's great to try these diets that are out there like autoimmune paleo diet or, or other so-called anti-inflammatory diets. But I would just point out that that can be somewhat problematic because if you're someone like I was who was just sensitive to virtually everything, it's kind of hard to come up with a diet that is really low allergen. And, um, and personally, knowing what I know now about my reactions, basically none of the diets out there would have been low allergen enough for me to make a difference. I mean, I tried a whole bunch of different diets before I figured out how to help me regain all the weight that I lost and get to feeling a little bit better. So anyway, I'm done. Thank you for listening. Thank you, Joyce. That was really great. I, I must say over the months here, I've been learning learned so much from you. And I, I really, this gut approach, I think is so important for everybody here. Just to keep in mind, the vagus nerve is the data highway between the brain and the gut. So whatever happens in the gut happens in the brain and and this is goes through the vagus nerve and it interaction it's it's kind of stuff so but uh, what, what joyce is doing is so important and just uh, she has this uh, inflammation medicine room also looking at this inflammation concept we know food is is a, the major contributor to inflammations and and different kind of reactions in the body where uh, she she mentioned where you said so well about this kind of uh, cross uh, reaction what I think it, what I like as a mathematician is the chain reaction what is happening and this is in, in long COVID so obvious there is a extremely complex wide range of reactions occurring in the body and low-grade inflammations which is then kind of rolling over to the next and to the next and and it's so difficult of course to to pinpoint all these issues but the science what we now have the importance is to do the science to really try to figure out and so that humanity will learn and we get better care now and in the future from this thank you very much for that joyce i, I really appreciate your your kind presentation i'm just going to reset the room for those who are coming late yeah today we have a little bit of special room first of all we are recording as you see so i'm not going to call up people yet and because the idea is we've been having these rooms for months and and all my wonderful speakers here are presenting kind of from a different angles the issues about long COVID, the vagus nerve and and so i i asked them to to present summaries 15 minute summaries and so we are on this uh today and i'm also gonna gonna then post this on our homepage and let's see i'm gonna give give links on on my bio and so forth for this so that we one time at least we record and, and have it as a memory of what we've been trying to find out as the core issues which are important to consider about long COVID and also of course looking at it from the perspective of the Vegas stuff. And now I'm going to call, call the next 
John, there is. Uh, sorry, Alice, if it's okay, I'm, I'm going to come in first come, first talk. Uh, usually I'm trying to have ladies, but, but maybe if it's okay with you, Alice, if, I, if you have time, I'll, I'll, go, I'll let John speak first, if it's all right. Gustav, I, I actually have to duck into another appointment um, that I have, so is it okay if I go first? Okay, because John usually segues, um, we usually complement each other, so um, it actually may work out well. Um, so, okay, sorry about that. So my name is Dr. Alice Perlowski. I am a uh, board-certified cardiologist, interventional cardiologist, vascular medicine physician in Los Angeles, California. I have uh, personal experience with um, post-COVID syndrome, which I'll get into later, uh, but I became very interested in in this room because I actually treat POTS patients uh, or postural orthostatic tachycardia patients or dysautonomia patients in my practice. Um, and so I was delighted to see that someone was actually looking into this. So I first want to get into um, SARS-CoV-2 and my interpretations of what might be happening to be causing all of the symptoms that many people are feeling. So SARS-CoV-2 binds to the ACE2 receptor, which is on the endothelium or the vascular lining, which supplies blood to many, many organs in the body. And when people wonder why COVID-19 is such a widespread and deadly illness, it's because of that fact. Every single organ that we have is supplied by blood and the blood is delivered via blood vessels which are lined with this this material called endothelium and that is where exactly where the virus binds and starts to do its damage so we know that first of all that's why it has widespread damage um, people report basically symptoms from head to toe. Um, people report gastrointestinal problems, pulmonary problems, cardiac issues, and neurological problems, uh, which is likely a result of the fact that the virus can actually cause some cross something called the blood-brain barrier. So normally things that are in our bloodstream um, are, are prevented from crossing into their brains, and that's an adaptive mechanism that prevents us from getting um, uh, poisoned by things in our bloodstream. But SARS-CoV-2 seems to cross into the, uh, the brain and spinal fluid and also does damage there, which is another reason why this illness can be uh, very devastating. Um, so when we look at dysautonomia, this was, uh, in my mind, a pretty rare condition and, and considered rare before um, SARS-CoV-2 came around the block. Um, the Dysautonomia International quotes that between one and three million Americans had postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome before all this COVID stuff existed. So it was considered a relatively rare disease. Postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome, the, the traditional definition um, for a cardiologist like myself who would diagnose it in the, in the office is when somebody's heart rate jumps up by 30 beats per minute or more when going from either a laying or sitting position 
position to a standing position. So normally when we change positions, our heart rate doesn't jump up that much. Maybe 10 beats, maybe 15 beats a minute if we're dehydrated or something like that. But 30 beats a minute is a lot. And particularly in young people who tend to be more sensitive to the sensations in their body for some reason, um, jumping up 30 beats a minute is quite dramatic and can be quite symptomatic. People can feel weak, they can feel dizzy, they could even almost pass out. And we have uh, a wild, I, I'd say that the incidence of POTS has probably jumped up significantly now, and I'm not even sure about how much, but we'll get into the statistics of, of um, PASC uh, or post-acute COVID syndrome in a second. Uh, but in any case, it is very difficult to treat POTS. I've only had in my practice over the past 15, 20 years, probably two or three pretty severe POTS patients. They were all young women. Um, they all had to be treated um, with medication. Normally when someone comes in with postural orthostatic tachycardia syndrome after it is diagnosed, the first thing the physician will usually recommend is what's called conservative measures. So things like keeping hydrated, uh, especially with, with fluids that have electrolytes in them, um, things like liquid IV or noon um, which are, are brands that uh, make this kind of electrolyte powder that does not contain a lot of sugar. Um, and also things like compression. So compression socks, compression pants, etc. And the reason for that is to keep as much of the blood going into the center of the body or towards the heart as possible. Because the reason that people feel very, very dizzy and, and lightheaded and things like that is that because the heart, by by beating so, so fast, it's attempting to compensate for a low blood volume. So when you increase your electrolyte and your fluid intake, you put on compression and kind of force that blood against gravity up towards the heart. You're trying to combat some of those effects. So those are the first kind of two things that we recommend people do. We recommend people try to change positions very slowly. So don't just jump out of a chair or bed because you have to give your body time to adapt. We recommend not being in, in hot rooms and saunas not being in, in the sun um, and we recommend being very very careful in the shower because people tend to have dizzy spells and things like that so that's the mainstay of treatment there are some medications that we can also give per, for POTS but that's you have to be careful with those medications I'd say particularly in post-COVID patients because usually we'll use those medications in people who have normal to low blood pressures. So, so at most of the time they have low blood pressures and the medications that are usually used for POTS um, will actually raise the blood pressure to help the person with this dizziness and stuff. I think post-COVID is a different animal because I think most people have normal to high blood pressures. And so I've seen some people trying these medications on uh, post-COVID patients and not having a lot of success. And I think that's because the person 
person is baseline hype, what's called hypertensive or high blood pressure. And, um, and so giving them something else that might raise the blood pressure is not making them feel well at all. So POTS, in, in summary, is a very, very, and dysautonomia in general, is a very, very difficult um, uh, entity to treat. And um, we didn't know, to be quite honest with you, a lot about it before now. And so when we talk, Joyce was talking about other chronic disease sufferers, many of these chronic disease sufferers have had POTS and nobody had a lot of answers. So if there's any good thing about COVID and post-COVID, it's that there really is a magnifying glass on these entities like dysautonomia, which is a good thing. So my personal experience is I was diagnosed in March of 2020 clinically with COVID. I, I had a pretty severe illness. Um, despite being a, a physician, I, I was not able to get a test immediately. I isolated at home. I became progressively more confused, progressively more hypoxic, so low blocks, blood oxygen level. I was terrified of exposing my colleagues by going to the hospital, so I kind of tried to treat myself for a few weeks, but that didn't work out too well. Um, I ended up in the hospital a total of four times. Um, I ended up with two emergency abdominal surgeries and uh, countless, countless uh, scans of my brain and, and every other organ in the body. Um, I'm left with uh, most significantly brain damage um, that has caused significant cognitive problems, which are getting better. Uh, also, a significant dysautonomia that's also made me very weak. I have profound fatigue, which is a lingering symptom. And then um, a bunch of other stuff that luckily seems like it's it's getting better. I speak a lot on this platform on Clubhouse about uh, long COVID. One of the questions I get most often is, is should we really care that much? I mean, how many people are really getting this? Um, because it kind of seems rare. I mean, a lot of even physicians who speak on Clubhouse say, well, I've only seen maybe a couple people. But the reality is it's not rare. And the statistics we have now um, are that between 10 and 30 percent of every person, adult, we're talking adults here, who get SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 end up with, with long symptoms. So these are symptoms that persist longer than four weeks in definition of CDC. And let's say 12 weeks is, is seems like it's the most conventional um, measure. So I recently hooked up with an organization called the American Academy of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, uh, who are actually attempting to write guidelines. I was very excited about this because I haven't seen much in the way of formal guidelines for practitioners until now. So um, they actually started something uh, called the PASC dashboard. Uh, the PASC dashboard. And literally, this is hot off the press. I just got this email about 10 minutes before I started speaking. Um, and let me just give you the website for that before I forget. It's PASC dashboard.aapmr.org. So they've started this kind of dashboard that's similar to like what they do at um, 
Johns Hopkins and things like that. And they actually use the Johns Hopkins data to project numbers. So on their current dashboard, they are estimating that there are over 37 million total COVID-19 cases that have survived. That's not counting those who did not survive. And the estimated past cases are 11 million 11.1 million is basically what they are estimating. And that's based on the 30% uh, rather than the lower end, which is 10%. If we went on the lower end, which is 10%, that's about three over 3 million people. And to put it in perspective, in the United States of America, according to the American Cancer Society, about 1.8 or 1.9 million people are diagnosed with cancer each year. So you can see the scope of the problem is, is much more than a very rare condition. Um, and so in summary, uh, I just would like to give um, my fellow long COVID survivors hope that I am seeing signs that this, uh, this entity is being recognized, that medical organizations have uh, stopped turning the other way and are actually developing um, guidelines in terms of uh, most of the PM&R um, people, most of the things that they do is, is uh, exercise prescriptions and um, monitoring type things, which I think is great too, because I've seen in many, many rooms um, where people are talking to long COVID patients where they're recommending upright exercises, um, exercises that change posture quickly, and, and that's not exactly very safe. So now we have um, formal guidelines that are probably coming down uh, the road, and I have a lot of hope for us that not only will time hopefully heal our endothelium, which has really been beat up by this virus, but also the medical community is starting to catch up. And it is catching up in the rest of the world as well. Uh, Katie and I have been speaking to people at the WHO, um, and there are people interested in this. And uh, so everybody, um, I know what you're going through. I'm going through it myself. It's it's really the hardest thing I've ever done, but there is hope down the road and time is on our side. So thank you so much, Gustav, for the opportunity. This is Dr. Alice and I am done speaking. Thank you, Alice. Uh, wonderful as always. And well, I first have to say it always breaks my heart when I, I hear about your and Katie's uh, kind of suffering due to long COVID. And it's, it's just kind of something which I think people need to hear that this is real, this is hard, and, and this is really suffering. So, so we all should do our best to try to figure out ways to improve your health and and the health of all these others what you are talking about i think that is so critically important of course i will at the same time just say thank you uh, alice has been very kind and helping me also with our our watch and and, and app and we are developing this uh, kind of dysautonomy at test specifically for for the study also so about sitting and, and getting up. And, and so your insight has been extremely helpful and I really appreciate it. So anyone here, just follow Alice. I think she has a wonderful kind of uh, way of presenting things. And of course, she, see, she is a sufferer. She has the kind of, let's say, both as a cardiologist 
an, an experienced patient in a way. She knows what she talks about, and it's so it's really so great to 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 hear you present. Thank you again, Alice, for coming to the room, and thank you for your for your your summary and, and presentation. That was that was really really nice. And I, I know you are busy, so you're gonna have to leave. But I, I'm really grateful for you finding time to come and, and tell. That's wonderful. Okay, great. So now we go to. To Mr. Endothelium, uh, I have the pleasure to have John Derris here, who has become my teacher in uh, molecular kind of uh, problems where what to explain, cause and effect, the chain of what really happens. Uh, I can I can attest that that I've learned so much from you being in this room, and I appreciate it so very much. So so with these words. Please, John, I, I look forward to hearing your, your summaries of a little bit about the current status of long COVID and, and what you think. Thank you, Gustav. As always, you were too kind. I don't think I deserve all that. Um, and uh, I, I always wondered how you get all these wonderful people together in the same room. It's a talent I, I will never have, I guess. Um, Today, uh, as most of the speakers uh, left no stone unturned, uh, I'd like to open up a new page on the vagus nerve uh, and long COVID. Uh, going through the anatomy of the vagus nerve, I noticed that when it lands in the uh, brain, in the cerebellum, it stops at a place called the nucleus solitary or solitary tract nucleus. We use both of them. Um, this is a, a sort of organelle in its own, uh, which is highly effective. And it produces the efferent and the efferent data that is sent to it. So uh, as uh, in my previous talks, I mentioned about how the vagus nerve uh, collects data and distributes data. 80% uh, of the data uh, is collected and 20% is distributed. But still, it's just data, right? Uh, what process is this? It's the solitary tract nucleus. Okay, so th th that's that's the uh, uh, processor part of it. But uh, the interesting thing is that it stands uh, to a neighboring ganglion. And that ganglion is the serotonin, dopamine, and norepinephrine ganglion. So... Uh, this really explains a lot of things, especially what Katie was talking about, about young people getting these enormous energy breakdowns after a long COVID strike. And, uh, I'll, I will get to there because it starts in the solitary tract nucleus. Um, what happens is uh, 
this is very interesting. In HIV uh, and cancer, uh, they have they sometimes have similar remedies. Well, of course, remedies are in brackets. Um, they they both do not have uh, exact remedies, but it, the medical system uh, found out that. Uh, a receptor called CCR5, it's chemokine receptor 5, is very uh, influential in all this process. And as we age, the CCR5 seems to wane uh, and uh, lose its effect, not completely. So what has it got to do with the SARS-CoV-2 virus. This is one of the receptors that pieces of the genome of the SARS-CoV-2 cling to via, again, instead of a CCR5, now we have a CCL5. Uh, doctors are very familiar with this because they use it in HIV treatment and it, it does a pretty good job if you recall, if you can recall, uh, uh, in one of my talks, I, I was mentioning about how the HIV virus, although it's a DNA virus, uh, resembles the SARS-CoV-2, although it's an RNA virus. And one of its joint mode of actions is, again, acting on the CCR5. Now, some doctors... Uh, in research, and I would have to mention uh, the great work of uh, Dr. Bruce Patterson and his team in the Patterson lab, uh, found out that CCR5 antagonist drugs work very well, very well. And most of their patients got well in three to six weeks. Um, so this is something new. And, of course, why does this CCR5 act so abruptly? Because the endothelial surface is completely obliterated. And, of course, as always, the blood has microclots. The microclots make the fluid uh, two separate parts. Uh, I, I, I'd like to repeat this uh, Two separate parts means the blood is no longer a homogenous entity. It's separated into two, three, four. We don't exactly know. But the big separation is that uh, the serum is more water-like and the red blood cells are more, more ketchup-like. So we have water and ketchup. Uh, not fusing into each other. And on the other side, we have the endothelial lining, which is uh, quite in bad shape and not catering to uh, what the blood really expects it to do. Uh, it's a mess. You can imagine it's a mess. Uh, so... Um, we now understand that alongside the 
the composition of the blood really going down, the endothelial cells really going down, we also have this CCR5 discrepancy. And the works of Dr. Patterson show that once young people within the age of, let's say, 20 to 50, especially women, once they get a little bit well and, oh, okay, I, I'm feeling good, so uh, I'll do some jogging and stuff, and they are bedridden for another two to three weeks. It's because training aggravates the CCR5, the chemokine receptor 5. And once that is aggravated, it's back to the blackboard and uh, frame one. So yes, this, this is a, a very interesting finding and uh, another uh, stone unturned uh, in the uh, long COVID uh, history. Uh, I hope that was useful. Thank you. Good to put the mic on. John, thank you very, very much again for your presentation. And I think it's it's so helpful to, to even if it's a little bit scientific, dear listeners, but if we're going to solve the, the long COVID and, and what it really is, we need to look at this from all the angles, which it really is. It is a multiple problematic issue. It has multiple kind of symptoms and and by this way looking at it from all these different angles and to understand the fundamental source where i now i'm totally kind of uh understand i i well not understand but i i know the endothelial cells that how this it, it's really important and it i think it helps uh, a lot of people to to really understand why is it so complex and why why how do we need scientifically approach this in the right way i of course i'm not a molecular scientist so i can't can't kind of do that but i can see the outcome and and by understanding the underlying functionality in a way I can maybe understand the data better because we are a big data company where we collect uh, a large large amount of data and to understand the different kind of outcomes we need to to understand the hypothesis the underlying explanations what potentially is happening in these different people and as Joyce said the chain of reaction what what is the different stuff it can cause and why what is the source of this? Of course, as it's the SARS-CoV-2 goes and attacks the endothelium, and this is kind of the, the starting point of the, the chain of reaction. So, so that is really, John. I really appreciate so much your kind of insightful, full uh, descriptions of this underlying phenomena. If I may, Gustav. Yes, uh, please, uh, Although, although the talk was quite nerdy, I know. Um, these CCR5 antagonists are drugs that are uh, on the counter, uh, presumably with prescription, of course. But these are available, and uh, a group of doctors are putting them on their regimen now. And it works with 
with, of course, other drugs like ivermectin or uh, the uh, uh, usual uh, antivirals. But we've gotten uh, a mile further, if I may say so. Uh, And uh, it's a very uh, considerable mile uh, for long COVID patients. Uh, I would say um, it's one of the best. Thank you. So I'm just saying all of these issues are so important. And I I can just kind of add on here that uh, what is really important, I think what we understand with COVID-19 today is vaccine is not going to solve it. And, and there was a really, really insightful piece written by uh, Dr. Professor Kevin Tracy, who is the, the president of the Feinstein Institute in New York. He's the guy who actually originally, for instance, discovered uh, uh, or explained the cholinergic immune system. But he he uh, is a very prominent kind of researcher. And he, he presented the case why we cannot rely on that the vaccine is going to solve COVID-19. And he kind of uh, asked and, and tried to argue for the case of medication, saying research now is too, it seems to be biased towards vaccination because the politicians are biased towards trying to solve this with vaccination. But he kind of scientifically pointed out the proof of why vaccination cannot be the ultimate solution for, for COVID-19 and why he, he asked and, and kind of wanted to, to say that we need more research into the medication. So, so there is is uh, really important to, to use resources also to find medication like Tamiflu for 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 flus and, and stuff like that. We we need these medications and to find these medications, we need to to understand the underlying functionality from the basics of medication and not just from the basis of immunologic reactions where where we just look at the. The, the kind of the vaccines seems to be the only interest of politicians, at least in Finland, we, 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 we seem to have just one blind alley here uh, where, where we're going down and, and, and people are thinking that vaccines are, are the only solution to these problems, which of course is scientifically wrong. That there, it will not be ultimate solution. It will just be one tool which we need. I'm very pro vaccines. I'm not saying anything negative about vaccine. It's just scientifically clear that that it will not be uh, sufficient enough to solve the, the COVID-19 crisis. And so we need medication. And we need, of course, if we have medications, we need diagnostics. We need to understand what we are doing. In long COVID especially, there is such a multitude of, of kind of problems. So, so vaccines are not, of course, going to solve that. We need medication. We need treatments. We need the fundamental understanding of functionality and what, what has caused this chain of reactions. So, so that, is, that is, of course, what is, what is so, so important. And of course, what we need to all contribute to and try to, well, do our own small little part in this work on, 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 on evolving in. This is a medical evolution in a way which is on, on high speed now. We, thanks to or due to COVID-19, 
we we really need to speed up the understanding. I, I don't. I just read a book where where medical science uh, was said to evolve only one one funeral at a time because all the old professors, the old doctors, has to die before any 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 evolution has happened, and that, that's of course a, a tragic issue if if it goes the same path with COVID nineteen. We we know now that luckily we are. Uh, moving a little bit forward, so we don't maybe need to wait until all the old guy, old scientists and doctors die before we get the solution. Sorry, a little bit. It's just how how things are done. Data need to be getting more data. We need to get a quicker, better solutions. Maybe that's that's my message to the world and and what I'm trying to do my little part in contributing by by getting data big data and, and offering that to scientists so that they can try up quicker new uh, medications, new solutions, new new care, and so that we much quicker get much better data on how does it influence uh, the, the, the system. Yeah, that, that's my, my short comment, sorry, long comment on this. This is lovely. I really, really appreciate all this, this kind of very, very uh, wonderful presentations and summaries. Katie, Joyce, John, I, I really appreciate it. I'm going to a little bit reset the room. And now I think uh, we, we're going to, uh, we, we need to, I need to remind, we are recording this. So we are going to put this on on uh, the homepage and whatever we're still still working on that but but so that we one time at least are kind of putting a, some summaries of what we talked because there's been so much very interesting discussions over the past past uh, kind of uh, months and since the spring so thank you very much all all the the hosts, the presentations you, you've had. I really appreciate Now, I'm, I'll be so happy to hear if somebody has questions or, or, or comments or whatever. Please feel free and just raise your hand and, and, and join join the discussion if you have something you want to point out. or, or what. At the same time, of course, Katie, Joyce, John, whatever, just, just uh, fill in or, or give extra comment to each other. Yeah, yeah, I was... Um, uh, I was just going to make a comment about POTS, and that is um, uh, there have been at least a couple studies, and there should be more, but there have been a couple studies that linked food reactions to POTS. One, I know one for sure was involving um, Dr. Peter Rowe, R-O-W-E, who's an expert on POTS for many years and is at Johns Hopkins. And he found, I believe it was milk, or he was looking at in, in adolescents and children. And I think there were other studies too. And um, also I'll just mention my own personal experiences that although I never had it diagnosed officially because um, it wasn't really talked about that much back um, when I was at my worst, but I, I certainly had that. I mean, my heart rate would go up really high when I stood up. And, and when I was gradually getting better, um, I noticed there was a fluctuation where um, originally, whenever I stood up after lying down, which I was lying down all the time practically, and I'd stand up and I'd have to get up very slowly or I would kind of have that kind of blackout sensation. Um, 
And so then when I got better and my food reactions declined, then that pretty much went away in terms of the standing up. Although occasionally when I would have a more severe food reaction, I would suddenly come back and I'd have to be careful standing up again for a day or two. Um, so anyway, I, I feel pretty strongly that, um, that there's probably a large component of, of food reactions. Um, the histamine release um, can cause more fluid to enter your tissues and kind of leave your, your bloodstream and that sort of thing. That may be one part of it. And then, you know, they talk about hyperadrenergic pots. You know, your heart rate and your adrenaline go go up. So anyway, that's just my perspective on it. Thanks. Yeah, thanks. I, I think that is uh, when we talk to Vegas now, of course, it's very clear that if you have something in the gut, it goes through the vagal nerve system. It's it's more than a nerve. It's 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 a lot of nerves. It's a system. But of course, as as John pointed out, it goes to the NTS, the nucleus of solitary tract, which is a kind of central data distribution center and processing. And and if things go wrong, of course, in these brainstem areas, it influences the whole autonomic nervous system, and it can then result in things like POTS because you are, are causing uh, dysfunction in the autonomic nervous system as a whole. And of course, the reactions then, the way that the vagus nerve influences pulse is then is changed. And when it changes, maybe outcome is kind of pulse rising due to postural changes. And this, of course, is part of this chain reaction, which I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's there. So, so that that is clear. Uh, did you have any anything more about that, John? Or... Uh, sorry, about what? No, about nucleus. So, track NDS about kind of if something in the gut. Uh, well, let's say gut and POTS uh, combination is the NTS or, or other parts of the brainstem, you think, which are? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Definitely, yeah. The uh, solitary tract nucleus is the processing center. So the uh, outgoing signals are, of course, processed according to the incoming signals. And the incoming signals are... Uh, from the gut, uh, it's it's the microbiome, and you know, like in diseases like Parkinson, there there is this uh, quite abrupt uh, operation. But of course, it, as it's better than dying, uh, it, it's applicable, uh, and it's called vagotomy. They cut off the vagus nerve. And uh, Parkinson's uh, patients live for, well, some more years, maybe. Uh, but what happens is uh, the uh, patient loses a lot of things, like maybe uh, self of being, proprioception, which is, you know, how we evaluate ourselves in time and space. Um, this is unbelievable, the things that the vagus nerve does. And once you cut it off, once you lice it, you are no longer you. You are somebody else. And uh, yes, yeah, so, tragic but true. Yeah, 
Thank you. Hi, it's Katie speaking. We can't hear you, Gustav. Again, again, sorry, I need to kind of find this mic sign. No, I'm just saying that that, um, we know the vagus nerve is critically important for cognition. Okay, so it is clear that cognition enhancement uh, is, is we, we need the vagus nerve to be active. It's, it's very simple to think of it this way. We know when you're in fight or flight and you're very aggressive, you become dumb. It's, it's very clear your, your brain capacity goes down. And, and so you need the vagus nerve to simply be intelligent. So it is known that uh, vagal stimulants are, are taking even for it in when people at the universities in 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 us are doing some some exams and things like that because they they get a better cognition they just become smarter you need it to be the vagus nerve to be active in order to think so so that is of course a clear cause and effect this has been proven in all history so we know that taking 10 deep breaths if you activate the vagus nerve, and that way you become smarter. And of course, if we take it from the opposite way, when we have an inflammation, or let's say the gut, uh, when we when we are suffering from something, we of course feel sick, or we have what is called brain fog. And and uh, I my hypothesis, and, and a lot, I think most agree that this is a brainstem issue where is the incoming signal, yes, is, for instance, coming from the gut microbiome or the inflammation. So, so when we become tired or when we become uh, cognitively declined, it is an evolutionary trait where, whereby when the cholinergic immune system is re- reacting to, to a disease, of course, we need it to get away from the flock. We need it to withdraw away into the bush in order to not uh, get the other ones in the flock sick. So so the, the evolutionary process there is that we get cognitively lazy, we get tired, we get depressed, and we withdraw because this way the flock survives and we don't uh, spread our disease to the others. And, and this kind of cognitive decline, of course, is, is important because if you don't cognitively decline, then you're full of energy and run around. So, so when we get sick, of course, this is the kind of sickness responding coming from the, primarily from the vagus nerve into the brainstem and then affecting the whole brain. And this uh, sickness response, of course, is, it seems to be a primary signal in long COVID which is then causing the brain fog and all these these kind of uh, physical cognitive uh, signals. It's, of course, one has to remember the vagus nerve is also in charge of, of neuroplasticity. And neuroplasticity is, is very, very important for us because that way we remember everything. If we read a paper, we need a newspaper and to remember what we read uh, some time ago, we need a degree of neuroplasticity, and if the vagus nerve is not active, this neuroplasticity goes down, and and so memory, of course, goes down, and all of these issues. So, so it's, of course, I'm a the vagus man, so I I think everything goes down to the vagus nerve, but of course, the brainstem there is is cognitively the central part. Uh, vagus nerve connects to, to several parts of of the brainstem. And, and uh, it's, it's amygdala, for instance, is involved there, and it was just recently.
they found something there in COVID-19, amygdala and so forth. So all of this is complex, but it's still uh, something where with data, with more understanding, with more kind of people involved and, and more systematic scientific approach, we can find out solutions for maybe narrow ones, but at least every small piece in the puzzle is helping the whole puzzle. So, so that's the, the work I hope that we, we all can do together. And, and let's hope that we, we can do something to, to improve the situation. That's the main thing. Main thing is that we don't go backwards. Anyhow, well, thank you very much. I, the, I, I was actually planning. Yeah, please, Joyce, continue if you have something. Oh, I was just going to say, I think something that needs to be studied, we were talking about the endothelial um, dysfunction problem, the blood vessels, um, something that's been known for a while and been studied and increasingly studied is um, there is a microbiota of our blood vessels in the plaque. And um, so I would, I'd be interested in how the pathobionts that are in the blood vessels already might interact with the effects of the virus to cause problems. And so that maybe even once the virus is cleared, the body may still have an upregulated reaction to the microbiota of the atherosclerotic plaque. So anyway, just something to put out there. Thanks. Any comment to that, John? Well, yes, but we we would have to go for another hour. So. <laughs> okay, sorry. Uh, John, no, no, no. Yes, uh, Joyce is definitely right. But an, another hour or two, maybe. Yeah, I'm trying to always uh, sorry, pull Joyce. myself back here when I get enthusiastic. Yeah, I know I could also go on for hours. It, on that theme, maybe we just are going then to conclude, since we are recording this and trying to put it online at some stage, maybe people won't have energy to listen for all our hours. John, so maybe we are just going to now then finish the room today. And I'm just going to say thank you so very, very much for joining Katie Joyce. Alice and John, I, I, as I said, it, it's such a great pleasure for me to having you. And thank you. Thank you very much for joining. I'm, I'm going to uh, close the room now. So and I'm just going to conclude before I close that next Tuesday, we're going to have a normal room again. We're going to sit and talk. I think we're going to just... Uh, uh, go to, I'm going to come a little bit back to breathing because that's quite concrete. So I'm going to try to, to a little bit more concentrate on breathing next week, but I'm going to just talk about practical things which we see in the data. And I think it will help also, for instance, on POTS and those suffering from long COVID to understand the fascinating facts about how breathing is is the most simple medic medicine we have. And, and I'm back to this strange thing that by, by using our hybrid uh, autonomic ner nervous system to, to switch it off from gasoline and go to, to electricity or the way back by, by exercising control breathing, 
it, it really is improving. We can see it in the data. We have 22,000 tests already done by our users, thousands of users, and, and we can see, I'm just so fascinating to see how a simple act of five seconds inhale and five seconds exhale is really changing things. And this is, uh, this is what I would like to kind of a little bit more in detail talk about next Tuesday, this same time on this room. So please, please join me if you have time. Uh, we're going to have an open discussion then. Uh, and, and, and so, so, and if you have opinions and, and ideas, please, please just come and join us next Tuesday. So thank you very much again. I'm going to, I'm going to finish the room and uh, I wish you all a really great evening uh, or day wherever you are. Hi, it's Katie speaking. Thank you, Gustav. Thank you, Joyce. Thank you, John. Thanks, Dr. Alice. Um, look forward to the next one.